Australians have collectively reached for the remote and turned down the volume on Canberra's noise. This is it. This is as thick as it gets. You're stark raving mad. Got anyone asking questions here? What is happening to mainstream media? You are fake news. Well, I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. I have never had more fun in my life. This is Represent. 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 On Sin Nation. Good afternoon. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. I'm Zizi Averill. I'm Oscar. I'm Claudia. And I'm Maggie. On today's show, we'll be covering two main areas because there's been so much news this week. First of all, we'll be looking at domestic matters, what's been going on at home in Australia. First, dealing with the major ramifications of the budget and the budget reply, which came out this week. And, of course, moving on to what seems to be an ongoing issue, which is, of course, the citizenship scandal, um, as Australia has lost another five politicians. Uh, Then we'll be moving overseas to America and the world. Yeah, we'll be looking at Trump's um, international policy, uh, looking especially at the Iran nuclear deal and what the US pullout might mean for the region, as well as the upcoming North Korean-US negotiations, and a quick look at the ramifications of the US's decision to move their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And of course, we'll be having Head to Head, where we'll look at the current topics and trends for inspiration to find the perfect competition for two prominent political figures to battle it out, uh, based off the news of this week. And in the light of Malaysia's shocking election, uh, we'll be looking at the oldest and the youngest leaders of our presidential nations so stay tuned for that but of course we want to hear your thoughts send us a tweet at at sinrepresent or follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent very money focused budget this week uh this week we saw the release of the 2018-2019 federal budget by scott morrison and of course the budget reply by bill shorten on thursday um what are your major takeaways from the budget this release this week? Um, Well, it's been a little bit complicated by the fact that there's been followed up by the reply and news of a very different kind so rapidly. So there hasn't been as like an extended of a response in the news about it, but it seems to be that the two key measures, at least that Scott Morrison is trying to draw attention to, is income tax cut for um, middle and low income earners and uh, the flattening the tax brackets, um, which is very controversial. Um, and basically the 32.5% tax bracket will be increased for, uh, from 87000 to 90000 in this year to next year, and it will eventually will go up to 120000 Do you know why this proposal, this uh, tax bracket manipulation has been suggested? Um, I guess it's in line with general liberal policy. Um, I don't really know. Like, I, a lot of governments are really concerned about tax bracket creep, I guess, and, like, uh, people trying to earn less in order to not make it into the next tax, bra- uh, tax bracket and that being not very good for the economy. But um, I think this is pretty, like, it goes beyond that. It's really a huge flattening of the progressive taxation system. So that seems to be the main controversial point. Uh, the income tax cuts seem to be sort of much of a muchness. Like, it's $10 a week for most people, um, which is, yeah, not a huge amount. And then beyond that, there's been a lot of spending into, uh, like, aged care, like, at-home aged care. A lot of money, like it's very boomery budget, like all a lot of money towards um, older people's facilities, not very much in the way of relief for young people, unfortunately, nothing in the way of climate change at all, um, some increases in health spending, um, huge uh, infrastructure boosts in pretty much every state. 
Um, yeah, so there's like a lot in it, but uh, the main focus definitely seems to have been around that sort of sweetener of the income tax cut and the subtle tax bracket flattening. Um, it's been really characterised as well by the fact that they have a lot more revenue than they were expecting. Um, and so the budget doesn't have the sting in it than it would often have. I guess with the uh, editing of the tax brackets, that's another liberal policy of kind of getting rid of this kind of overreaching tax. Because like with bracket creep, it basically, because of inflation, you get taxed more yeah. regardless of the fact that your money is still buying the same amount. Yeah, right. So I guess it's in the line of the whole tax cuts for, you know, normal people and everything. But uh, we are just getting all these tax cuts because of a surprise economic windfall. Yeah, exactly. Are we going to hit surplus? Um, supposedly, we're supposed to hit a uh, peak of the deficit this year, and then next year we should be in surplus, according to the estimates. Um, so that seems to be the yeah prediction. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't come to fruition, but we'll see. Um, but it's interesting in relation to Shorten's budget reply because obviously um, he's willing to do the same tax cuts for middle and low-income earners without the company tax cut, which gives him an even bigger revenue boost than ScoMo is promising. Um, Oscar, what do you think the biggest winners and losers of the budget are from this federal budget? Well, I, th- I think it is... Um, I mean, I think the tax... I mean, I think the changes in tax are definitely going to increase... I mean help it's going to help boost the popularity of the government of course shorten has attempted to doubly double the match of what it's seen but i think this budget has also seen a, in quite a few thi- in quite a few things the um capping well not capping uh freezing the amount that an organization can receive and not making it be adjusted by growth so for example we've seen that with the abc and foreign aid in this budget. So what does freezing actually mean? So um, in typical budget circumstances, I believe um, certain certain um, things can be, incre- certain th- more money goes to things based on the growth so if there's a significant number of significant amount of growth, then the, then that thi- then the thing might get more money, but if there's less, then it will get less money. Um, but if it's f- it's a, if it's frozen, then that means it doesn't change. It's a flat amount. So regardless of the rest of Australia seeing an economic boom, these yes. specific areas and segments won't see any increase of their funding. Yes. And that's effectively a decrease in their budget? I mean, it really depends on the economic conditions, but it can sometimes mean... Um, it can often mean a decrease. I see. And that's mainly going to affect the ABC and foreign aid. Yes. And foreign aid has already been criticised in Australia for being significantly underfunded. It's seen a lot of cuts over successive budgets yeah. uh, going back quite a few years. So this could be a, just another chink in... I guess it's, it's, a, it's a testament to the fact that this is an election budget and foreign aid very rarely actually gets uh, votes moving. Yeah, that's one of those things, right, that everyone's like, I care about that, but ultimately no one votes on it. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a thing that you can... S- Slash, and no one really notices or cares about it because it doesn't affect them. Yeah, I guess see it. I guess the ABC one is like it seems to me quite obviously a vindictive thing as a result of the reporting on the company tax cuts, um, which is. But was that just the ABC, or I, I thought that the reporting of 
company tax cuts was generally across the board not seen very positively by major newspapers and news outlets. Uh, yeah, I think so, but the ABC is the main one that the government is in a position to slash the funding of, so I guess that's you know where they have that power. Um, but yeah, I saw that quote that um, they were saying, you know, we've cut all the fat we can cut, and now we're cutting into muscle, so it seems like they're really, really unhappy with... The, you know, is this a statement from the ABC? From the ABC, oh. yeah, right. From Michelle Guthrie, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we also seen this budget uh, reforms kind of targeted at land owners with the vacant landowner. Um, not too sure what sort of. Oh, so they're not gonna. Yeah, they're removing the tax deduction abilities of people who own vacant land. That seems good. I presume this is a way to kind of promote housing development yeah, and therefore housing affordability. Uh, was a supply side to sol- yeah. solving the housing affordability crisis. And I guess when this is coupled with a huge investment in transport and infrastructure, it may actually help to relieve kind of the outer suburbs, um, making them more realistic as a place to settle if you do want to move into the city. Mm. So I guess this is an interesting way to tackle what is seen as a very complex housing it crisis. Seems like an extremely roundabout way to tackle it, but yeah, I, I think mean... Better well, what other property. way would you tackle it? Well, I think the main issue is that, like, property speculation has driven up prices to a ridiculous amount. Like, I think we need to take away the incentives to speculate on the property market. We'll pretty much deal with the problem instantly. But nobody wants to do that because a lot of people have invested a lot of money in those mm. And areas. And we have to also consider that a lot of, like families have also invested in investment properties so maybe that's also but i think the labor approach to it is quite good in that they want to grandfather it so like from now on you can't do it but people who've done it in the past will still get the gains of that i think that's quite good um yeah actually really weird thing from the budget that i don't know if you guys were like paying attention to but i'd never really heard about before is they're making a huge amount of their revenue off illegal tobacco stuff like i didn't even know that was a thing to be honest but it seems to be yeah is it 3.6 billion in new revenue over the next four years just from changing the way tobacco duties are charged. I think um, this is one of those things where Australian tobacco, and if you're a smoker you'll know this, Australian tobacco is taxed at such a high rate as as a way to try and reduce smoking rates. But in doing so, it creates this inverse incentive for importers to try and do it through the black market in a way to avoid that huge price and to sell their goods at a cheaper rate on the street and therefore, you know actually provide customers a cheaper rate. So what they're doing is just they're not declaring it? Yeah, it's... it's Apparently, cigarettes are one of the most illegally smuggled resource wow. in the world that isn't an illegal substance. Yeah. Um, so... That's really interesting. I'm, I'm not sure how effective it will be. There is also a lot of funding going into spy agencies in Australia, so yeah. maybe Border Force will mm. also get some money... Well, you never know what they're doing without money. Well, That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, border forces... I mean, the budget of border forces being buffed in mm. this budget. Yeah. And that may also be trying to reduce illegal tobacco well, imports. it seems it, to be. I read some Guardian article that was like, pretty much the majority of this budget is being paid for by people who do crimes of some kind or another. Like, there's all these crackdowns on, like, white-collar crime, but then, you know, this crackdown on illegal tobacco, it's just like a, a criminal's budget. Just <laughs> Which is... Kind probably of a good thing. Funny, I mean, making yeah, money like, off stamping down on a black market is probably a positive thing for yeah, society. Yeah, it's difficult yeah. to criticise that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah although it seems um, really sneaky. Like, they were saying that um, part of the reason why this tobacco thing has become a huge part of it is because it's like a 12-week cycle getting tobacco into Australia. So by taxing it before it comes into the country instead of from warehouses here or something like that, they get an extra 12 weeks of money on this side of the year. 
I mean, so it's like a bit of a forward shift, which it, I thought was quite interesting. That that's an interesting economic strategy, but it also could just be to do with like the logic of trying to stop tax evasion when it comes to illegal imports. Oh, totally. But like, it's cool that they've like been able to play it that way. So, it, like the they apparently, if they didn't do that, they wouldn't get the surplus they were looking for. So it's like really the whole thing is hinging on this tobacco thing, which I, yeah, it's really kooky. I never even thought about it before in my life. Um, any other interesting observations? Uh. Um, I guess I'll add to that. What I found really interesting was the changes to super. I guess something I think is something that I should have paid more attention to. Like I didn't realize that they automatically signed you up for life insurance if you were like I just didn't realize that was a thing. But I think now with the changes and um, not having that happen to people under twenty five, I think is really good. It's yeah. for people that are more ignorant. And the other that. thing is no exit fees now, right? Mm, yeah. I think so. And generally, what else was there? Well, I think in terms of super for young people, I, like, I'm not surprised that you haven't thought of it because I haven't thought of it. Um, mm. As a young person, I don't consider my pension very often, and I'm sure a lot of you guys don't either. Mm. Um, it's a long time in my future. <laughs> so I've earned enough money I, to be thinking about it that <laughs> That's awesome. But like, I've moved across a couple industries, so I know I've got supers in different areas, so I've probably got like $25 in one. And yeah. Like, yeah, totally. I just tick the box that's like, whatever you guys want. Exactly. Yeah. But like, you've, you've got all this unclaimed super in all these different places because we're not actively thinking about it. So mm. maybe forcing this to be top of mind and forcing us to think about life insurance mm. is a is a positive, you know, forward thinking proposal. Yeah, teach it in schools. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, you. yeah, another good thing that they introduced for people that like, especially young people, is possibly the three percent annual cap on fees for accounts with less than six thousand dollars. So that's probably most of us. Like, yeah. thank you for doing that. <laughs> like, <laughs> we I don't want to super. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, not yet. You will. You will have to deal with the. <laughs> All of that. It's just a paperwork that you forget about, and sometimes you'll get a letter in the mail being like, this is from your super, and you're like, what? I remember working for you. Who are you? Um, So while we're here, I might as well just right now play a little bit of the clip of the Labour um, response. So here we go. As I listen to the government's fifth budget on Tuesday night, I knew immediately we can do better than this. The people of Australia deserve better than this. And a Labor government will deliver better than this. Better than 10 years of cuts to schools and hospitals in exchange for $10 a week. $10 a week. That's all that the Liberals think it will take for you to forgive and forget. They think that for $10, You'll forget they tried to put up your taxes last year. Yes, so that is more of that if you go searching for that, but that's just a little um, taste of sort of what Bill Shorten had to say on the whole thing. Um, Zizi, did you mention, did you want to mention something to do with the doll and the sort of... Just really quickly on the note by Bill Shorten, I think he's he's touching on a very important point, which is this is an election budget, so they really don't want to create any major harm to any specific group, but it's a lot of nothingness. So $10 a week doesn't feel like a lot, um, as Claudia was mentioning earlier. And in general, when there are cuts, they're to very specific groups, which don't usually have a lot of purchase in kind of like electoral debates. So, you know, we're targeting foreign aid and the ABC um and you know funding unfortunately oh really as yeah. well yeah um but 
these these and foreign doctors who usually won't have voting rights anyway but one of the most uh interesting things is the fact that there hasn't been any increase to the welfare recipients for uh, people on the dole uh, there was a lot of debate I, I believe last week where a lot of politicians were asked if they would consider increasing new start which is what happened uh, the welfare you receive when you are waiting for a job or job seeking um which at the moment is only $40 a week. Mm. Was that Julia, Julia Banks? Is that her name? The lady who came out and was like, I could do that. Mm. And everyone was like, mm, Well, it was unlikely. later revealed that she owns six yeah. residential properties. <laughs> so, uh, I, and, and then I think Julie Bishop maybe made another statement that, you know, in her past when she was a backpacker, she could have lived on $40 a day. Um, $40 a week, sorry, but uh, refused to say whether or not it was actually enough money for someone who was paying rent, yeah, and seeking a job. Yeah, not backpacking like <laughs> most of us aren't. I mean, we have to admit that the both the Business Council and the unions have said that there needs to be some increase to New Start because it entrenches the cycle of poverty because it's literally too little money for you to find a job. Yeah, so you exactly. Ca- you can't pay for travel, you can't pay for clean clothes, you can't pay for like resume advice or any services that would actually benefit you getting a job. Yes, so, sorry Oscar, um, I was just about to say if we divide $40 by 7 days of a week, then divide by 3 for every meal, like excluding all other costs of transport, it's only a dollar and ninety cents per meal, which yeah. is insane, and that's literally assuming you live with your parents. Uh huh. You don't have to like, pay for any bills, anything else. Plenty of people do not. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty disgraceful. I gotta say, I don't really understand why Labor's not backing it. This seems like a pretty no-brainer type thing. Like, I, I believe Labor has come out saying that they would consider. They just voted it down. They just voted it down. Yeah. Oh my. Okay. Yeah. So I don't really understand what the thinking is behind that, but. Yeah, I mean, like, really conservative people have come out being like, this is kind of embarrassing for Australia. Um, yeah, it has found some surprising supporters in John Howard. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, so. I mean, it makes sense on that level. Like, even, yeah, like, just like what you were saying, like, people who are really just scraping by are not good for anything. Mm. So even if you don't care about them, you should care about the economy. Yeah. We should move on to our next big political yes. issue of the week. Um, the... Which is, of course, the continuing citizenship scandal. Yes, Section Section 44 has claimed more victims. Five more victims. Um, So do you want to tell us a bit of the story? Uh, So so the High Court today, I mean, not today, a um, couple of days ago, also coincidentally during the citizenship thing, um, disqualified more people from Parliament. So... I be- so there's been five uh, re- resignations, or four resignations, out of this thing, which is going to cause a string of by-elections that will happen in another Super Saturday. Yeah, this was all sparked by Labour Senator, Senator Kelly Gallagher actually referring herself to the High Court um, after it was revealed that her British citizenship might not have been formally renounced by the time she had gone been elected in the 2016 election. Mm. She was actually, I believe, a late nominee in that election cycle. And she's the only one who doesn't get a by-election, right? Because as a senator, it's just a countback. 
Yes. Yeah. So I, I believe, uh, I can't remember his name at the moment, but he was a former union leader, will be stepping into his position. So we'll see him take True. the reins. Um, but there is rumours that she might be um, a contender for another federal seat if there is one that comes up. Um, so she's not quite giving up her political ambitions, um, so it could make an interesting shift from the upper house to the House of Representatives. Um, the interesting thing about this case is that uh, she and her lawyers maintain that she took reasonable steps to renounce her citizenship uh, to with the UK embassy. However, um, the Commonwealth unanimously found um, in the High Court that she had left it too late. So it was a matter of her not sending in her paperwork quickly enough. So she has renounced it, but she hadn't by the time. Is that so it? So she had started the paperwork before she took... But when it got came through, she'd already nominated. She had... No, she had... She was not registered her renunciation until August, more than a month after the election. So oh. she had gone through the election, been voted in, won her seat... Um, sorry, won her Senate seat, and then only a month after did the UK actually formally say, yes, you've been cleared. Right. So it wasn't just before she nominated, but in fact, like, before, like, she was elected already. Yes. Okay. That is kind of bad, but I still feel like this whole issue is stupid. I think this is why Labour is still trying to spin it, that they are doing proper checks and balances. Uh, Bill Sean, when the Section 44 kind of scandal was breaking last year, feels like a long time ago, uh, was always claiming that Labour's processes were a lot more stringent, that they had properly vetted all their candidates. And I guess this recent fall kind of indicates that their vetting process is probably not as good as they need it to be. Yeah, Um, although I did read that what all of these people have done is in line with Labour's own policy regarding to making the best possible effort or whatever. So it was that Labour's policy wasn't right, not that they didn't follow it. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean... As in, like, they followed their own party policy to a T because they didn't realise this is what the High Court would rule. Yeah, but when Bill Shorten was saying Labour is so much better at yeah. this, he was saying our policies are strict enough that we won't have any members that will be referred yeah, to the High right. Court. And, of course, as immediately after Cad- the ruling on Caddy Gattaca's, uh citizenship came down, four Labour members had to resign their seats and one former Nick Xenathon party yeah. had to step down from her South Australian seat. Oh, sorry, no, she's not a... Uh, South Australia's Centre Alliance, uh, Ms Sharkey Yeah, so she is Xenophon down. then. She yeah. is Xenophon, you're right. Um, so I guess it's it's pretty embarrassing for the Labour Party but I feel like people are so bored of Section 44 that yeah. maybe it's not as much of a scandal as it was last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it as well is that none of the seats that are, are going to be recontested are particularly contrary. Like, there aren't any that it's like, oh my god, this is going to be a game changer if they lose it or whatever. Like, a lot of people are set to retain. Um, but the thing I also find um, interesting about this is that um, I don't think... Th- it's a bit hard to blame the UK, and I don't know how this is... I mean, blame, blame the blame the Labour Party, because it was, you know, there was a, there was a decent consensus that Section f- uh, 44 precluded... Si- instances like this. However, the High Court has now ruled to the contrary. Yeah, exactly. Was there a belief that reasonable steps w- included submitting your paperwork so that they only get processed a month later? Is that considered... Well, it, I can see why the High Court considers that an unreasonable amount of steps taken in preparation to, for taking national I mean, office. It yeah. was the consensus of the Labour Party's legal ah. team, not yeah. the general. 
I don't know. If I sent in an assignment and it only got processed a month later. (laughs) But I guess you don't don't know how long it's going to take, right? Like, I was reading something where people were like, it's kind of embarrassing how, like, who holds our government or not is entirely dependent on the bureaucracies of other countries when they decide to send us stuff like I was like that that being said that's really funny we have to look at who is being tripped up by section 44 and it's not senators from you know other countries apart from Britain Canada and Commonwealth nations and it's because these people aren't thinking that they need to check if they are citizens of another nation I mean we have to remember um, former uh, senator Sam Dastiari was he a senator or a House of Reps? Yeah, uh, senator. he was a senator. He he went through quite a stringent process to get rid of his Iranian citizenship, which took a lot of money. He had to procure translators. Um, it's same with um, Anne Ali, who they this week was up for questioning, but she was fine. And Ali, yeah, who had to renounce her Egyptian Egyptian citizenship. Yes, mm. um, and of course uh, Lucy. Um, the Kachui. family first lady exactly yeah. she went through a huge process renouncing her citizenship um from oh she's kenyan i'm kenyan sure. yeah yes which took a long period of time for her and actually caused a lot of questions over her legitimacy yeah. they all took the proper steps that's a really good mm. point it's just people being lazy who are from commonwealth countries are like oh, who are expecting yeah, the process not to be i mean we have to think i mean obviously this is not the same extent as uh, malcolm roberts but these are people <laughs> who are basically sending off emails to the british high commission being like so i don't want to be part of you anymore yeah. um I, I i feel like the checks and balances aren't being made and while these are like small bureaucratic issues if you want someone to be across small bureaucratic issues maybe they shouldn't be in charge of our legislation (laughs) if they can't work out paperwork and bureaucracy maybe they should be writing (laughs) policy documents fair enough i'm we're curious about what you think about those whole issues so absolutely send us a tweet at sin represent or follow us on facebook facebook.com forward slash sin represent now it's time for another song we've got the way i am by charlie puth Maybe I'ma get a little shy Cause everybody's trying to be famous And I'm just trying to find a place to hide All I wanna do is just hold somebody But no one ever wants to get to know somebody I don't even know how to explain this I don't even think I'm gonna try
Everybody's trying to be famous And I'm just trying to find a place to hide I'ma tell them all I'ma tell them all that you Awesome. So that was The Way I Am by Charlie Puth. We're going to move into talking a little bit more about America and quite a few things have happened this week, but we'll start us off with the um, Iran deal and the US pulling out. There's lots of political and economic sort of, I suppose, um, reactions and things that are going to happen. Let's jump right in. Um, so the U.S. has withdrawn from the Iran nuclear agreement, or the I'm pretty sure it's technically called the Joint Agreement for Comprehensive Action. The agreement Something catchy like that. <laughs> <laughs> the agreement subjected Iran to ve- various nuclear inspections in return for lifting historic sanctions that have been imposed on the country. Mm. So the U.S. has withdrawn from the deal and reimposed the lifted sanctions. Can we just quickly mention who else is in that deal? Yeah, mm-hmm. so the... Uh, the um, Various European countries, and pretty sure it's the European Union as well. Um, I think it also encompasses like Russia and China. Yeah, it's Russia. A, Russia. Is it's a it. number of parties that are actually signatory to this deal. But America is a uh, seen as kind of a linchpin because they do have such economic power in terms of sanctions and position. Um, yeah. So America pulling out is a significant uh, problem for the longevity of the deal. Um, however, there is Europe has announced that they will still pledge to be party to it. Yes, um, but it's these, there's going to be a lot of political ramifications due to, because the sanctions were lifted, it, off, it opened up new opportunities for Europe and America to be able to trade, and so now that those have, now that those might be curtailed in line with this new development, it might have political ramifications for Europe. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of options with this, actually, because isn't that also, what's it, that secondary part of the deal, is that you can't trade at all with Iran. Um, like, the US will activate that, that they'll boycott people who are also trading with Iran. So Europe will jeopardise its relationship with America if they continue to trade in Iran. And, like, there was something where, like, the um, American ambassador in Germany tweeted and was like, German businesses, all remove your business from Iran now. And, like, all these Germans were really offended by it because they're like, well, you can't just tell us to do that. But, like, they can, sort of. Yeah, America is very strict with its sanctions and positions, um, and it does demand a united front. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, economically and politically, the nations that are still claiming to be in the Iran deal do actually cave to meet, to like not boil down to the threats of America, saying, if you trade with Iran, we'll sanction you. Mm. It'd well, totally, be- as well as... like. Um, I- the Iranian guy in charge of making this decision, whose name I've forgotten, came out and said, well, like, we're only in it if there's something really in it for us, which, like, heavily implies that, like, Europe will not be able to get that together in the way that the US was able to. Um, um, yeah. It's also going to be interesting to see on the... Um, also, with the polit- on just on the political ramifications thing, we might also see some... Um, Iran trying to do some uh, cyber and various other um, attacks that could damage the economies of Ooh. various... 
companies and nations. Um, cool. CrowdStrike, which is a security company, reported a shift in Iran internet activity after following the US withdrawal. Dang, that's... So I mean, intense. Iran has long been criticised by its neighbours as being quite a destabilising force. They're behind a lot of um, insurgent regimes in other nations, which mm. are causing a lot of political and military strife. Um, they're seen as kind of like a a nasty influence in the region, which is why Saudi Arabia is often in conflict with it, why, which is why Israel is often in conflict with it. They're, they're seen as a very mm. powerful force that's kind of been held back by yeah. sanctions for so long. And then note... Saudi Arabia, Israel, not necessarily the most pleasant neighbours either. Like, Oh, yeah, of, yeah. of course. Um, but I think with Iran, it was seen as a, um, willing to fund militant organisations um, and also active in developing nuclear technology and missile technology. Mm. Uh, I think this is why, if we go back a, a few weeks ago, um, Israel made... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli's prime minister, made quite a... Um, strange presentation, completely in English, which is not traditionally how an Israeli prime minister addresses oh, his audience. Is this the PowerPoint thing? Yeah, his PowerPoint demonstration where he claims mm. that Iran had been lying, that they had not been following their um, obligations under the Iran deal, and what was seen as a call directly to America, and in particular yeah. Donald Trump, to pull out of the deal. Um, yeah, well, Netanyahu's probably having a really good week now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Netanyahu does have... Uh, a lot of criticisms of the Iran deal because it basically empowers Iran to develop economically and the criticism is that the Iranian regime is still very anti-Israel and the deal does not preclude them developing their non-nuclear military uh, weapons, including Mm -hmm. missile technologies, which could endanger Israel, which is why Israel is so... is so vehemently anti it and which is why they did that very strange presentation <laughs> yeah um, right to donald trump mm. but yeah i mean i can't really see any upsides to this withdrawal at all i mean like i saw people saying like we need to stop calling it withdrawal it's a violation like it was an agreement it's been violated because both sides were upholding their end of the deal and trump expects iran to insanely continue upholding their end while he withdraws which is not how deals work weirdly from a guy who makes deals yeah it's also (laughs) going to be interesting to see the domestic impact that this has on iranian politics and the iranian economy yeah we've already seen um some more uh, kind of a a flashback to an earlier Iran-American relationship where a lot of what is considered a more radical faction of the Iranian parliament coming up on stage and uh, attempting to burn a paper print out of the American flag. Um, Iran had been known many years ago to be kind of like the epicentre of the down with America kind of slogans in the streets. Uh, The populace was quite anti-American because of the harsh economic sanctions on them because normal Iranians didn't feel like they could grow and be wealthy and have nice lives because of the American sanctions. This deal kind of was trying to change the -the on-the-ground shift of how Iranians see America. And after the Iran deal, there was a lot more positive sentiments and a lot of the moderates were actually gaining ground in the Iranian parliament. They were able to gain more power. There was a bit of a shift in the parliament. And I think this, the America violating their, the Iran deal may see more radical factions of the Iranian parliament regain control and kind of 
pull back developments that have happened in the nation. Yeah, just on that point, um, one of the major reason, reasons that Donald Trump did withdraw was because of the sunset clauses on the um, round deal. Basically, he wasn't happy that the deal was going to eventually come to an end and Iran would be able to develop nuclear sort of um, technology again afterwards. But I suppose the thinking in that, or what we think of, of Obama having that in the deals, number one, Iran like that was something that they needed to have in the deal for them to agree to it and number two like Dizzy was saying that there was this hope in America and across Europe that perhaps uh, 20 years later or something like that there would be shifts in government that sort of has been like impacted by the deal and then there'll be a more moderate government who might be um, you know more open to the idea of extending it or something like that versus now withdrawing like sort of takes us quite a few steps backwards from that. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to make any logical sense to be like, this deal will end, so let's end it today. Yeah, I think, obviously we're not privy to the negotiation process back when Obama was in charge, but I feel like the the existence of the sunset clauses was the only way that moderate Iranian politicians could actually get their more conservative um, politicians to actually sign up on it, um, to get on board, and... uh, it is worrying to say that we agree to non-proliferation for 10 years, but after that, who knows? But is it but though, it's better than like, it's incredibly weird to have like an eternally binding clause in an agreement that's like, you will never do this. Like, that's not really how... I, I actually don't think that that's uh, that unusual. Sunset clauses are usually only when you're trying to phase something out. Yeah, but, but this like, is saying there that, will be governmental change in Iran at some point. Well, we can't predict that. Yeah. And by the evidence of what we've seen straight after the Iran nuclear deal was announced, we may actually see some reversion in what we see as moderate forces. So I I don't think we can make predictions on whether Iran will reform. Uh, So moving along, um, there's... uh, North Korea has released three prisoners from uh, North Korean custody, and this comes after an increasing diplomatic effort between uh, South Korea, North Korea and America Um, and there's also and there's also been looking at a uh, joint American-North Korean summit to happen in uh, Singapore I think is the opted location. Yeah, I guess this is moving from one failed peace deal to a burgeoning one. A lot of people are criticising just to jump back to the Iran deal really Mm -hmm. quickly the fact that America pulled out of that agreement as kind of jeopardising any negotiations they could have with North Korea um, in their negotiation in Singapore, uh, which is coming up um, on March 31st. That's the plan date. That's the plan date, at least. Um, It could be interesting to see how Iran... This this Iran deal kind of affects how America approaches their future negotiations with hostile parties with nuclear ambitions. I mean, there's a lot of correlations, I would think. Hmm. Mm, um, sure. Actually, uh, just a little correction. I'm pretty sure the month is planned for June. I June. Think? Yeah, oh, June. yeah. Sorry, I'm misreading my notes. Apologies. <laughs> no. um, so this comes after the uh, well. First off, the new uh, president that was willing to be more lenient on. Uh, South and North relations, and there was the third inter-Korean summit that took place in the little uh, 
houses along the border that were built for diplomacy. Yeah, the blue diplomatic houses in the DMZ, we saw a kind of a historic moment, which we discussed uh, last a week. A couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, yeah. sorry. Uh, which occurred on the DMZ, which was uh, South Korean President Moon Jae-in shaking hands and crossing the border with mm. Kim Jong-un. And planting a tree as well. And so wholesome. <laughs> it was, if you ignore the fact that one is a autocratic oh, dictator <laughs> with mass uh, human rights violations. And, yeah. People are complex this year. <laughs> uh, it's also been predicted that uh, Mark, Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, met well, the then CIA director uh, met with, uh, secretly met with Kim Jong-un. Yeah, I think that's did, been confirmed. Do that. We've yeah. got photo evidence and statements and tweets by the president. <laughs> I mean, he had already done that before he was the CIA director, right? Like, they were like, oh, we're bringing a guy in who's actually already met Kim Jong-un. I'm pretty sure. We'd have to check that. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some interim diplomatic relations. Often there are a lot of uh, limitations on how you negotiate with uh, a country that you have such hostile relations to as we as America does with North Korea. And so often they can't send an official representation of the American government because that would be in violation of, you know, talking to the enemy legislations. Mm. Yeah, I think he's one of the few people who has met him, which is, yeah, really interesting. And I guess he's like extremely well-placed to deal with this now mm. for that reason. Um, who were the three guys they released? Um, so basically these were American-Korean... Uh, it, it's it's sort of alleged that they had been spies for the American government um, who had been captured by the North Korean government. Um, it is unknown whether these were just merely civilians who had been captured or they were actually American spies. Right. Mm. Um, that being said, uh, North Korea does have a... Uh, habit of uh, kidnapping foreign um, uh, foreign visitors um, as well as uh, there was a huge scandal quite a few years ago um, quite a few decades ago actually where it was revealed that uh, North Korea had been operating a kidnapping regime in Japan and South Korea basically what? kidnapping random Japanese and and Korean. taking them back to North Korea yes what on earth for no one really knows Prop- um, propaganda spying uh, there was allegations that they could teach Korean North Korean spies how to like culturally fit into Japan and South Korea and therefore more effectively kind of uh, negotiate their way through the South Korean and Japanese systems. That's completely it's quite a wild story. As if you'd rely on a random tourist to um oh some of these were like just random couples and young people. What if you pick someone incredibly socially awkward? This is just (laughs) one of the small pieces of North Korea's quite bizarre system of governments and human rights Mm. violations. Fascinating if you ever have some time on Wikipedia just to look at the history of North Korea's kidnapping regime. Fascinating. Well worth your time. I recommend. (laughs) So moving along, um, uh, Donald Trump tweeted that the uh, U.S. Embassy will begin moving to Jerusalem next next week, uh, which comes after you know quite a controversial move uh, where America uh, shift in American diplomacy, where they now recognise the um, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, uh, despite UN resolutions uh, against such action. Yeah, and this has actually sparked a lot of violence uh, between uh, Gazan citizens and Israeli citizens. Between, against... Israeli forces. Against, against. yeah. Well, yeah, that's correct. Um, I believe the numbers is over 100 people have been injured in the conflicts um, because... And I guess it's good to clarify why this is such a big deal. Mm. Um, 
moving from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is not the same as moving, you know, your embassy from Melbourne to Canberra. Jerusalem is such a politically, culturally and religiously laden uh, area of the world, um, which is still under negotiation over what territories it actually is covered in, that if you move your embassy to Jerusalem, what you're effectively saying is you're coming in favour of one side of the two-state solution or another. Um, So I'm not surprised that we're seeing a lot of violence. I think this is just like a one of the ongoing issues of what we're seeing is quite a uh, moment, spare-of-the-moment decision by a Trump administration with very little thought to the actual realities of the ground. Yeah, I also just don't understand. Like, it just seems to be a symbolic move on his part that obviously has much more than symbolic consequences for heaps and heaps of people. Why? It's just... There's so many terrible calls this week. Like, I, you know, try not to be a person who complains about Trump all the time but it's just like a huge mess and incredibly sad and the reporting on it has been really really bad as well people being like ooh clashes between Palestinians and Israeli soldiers um, if I can I believe uh, this week has marked the sixth week of uh, Gazan protests on the uh, Israeli border and Mm -hmm. yeah and I think one person was shot by Israeli security forces this week Mm, a lot of people have died yeah, yeah, I'm not sure of the exact the figure, protests, but um, but yeah, it's um, I think one of the Hamas guys came out and spoke about it this week and was like, yeah, they've been entirely peaceful protests, which is not entirely true, but they have been almost entirely peaceful protests. Um, but he made the point, which I think is interesting, that yes, ostensibly it's in reaction to the Jerusalem thing, but more broadly, it's to draw international in- uh, attention to the plight of those people. Mm, yeah. A lot of things have happened this week. Unfortunately, we will have to cut it short here. Um, as always, if you want to contribute to the conversation, send us a tweet at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. So this week, we are going to be putting um, the oldest Prime Minister against the youngest Prime Minister slash President slash ruler of a country so of course for the oldest we've got prime minister oh i'm gonna butcher the name again i apologize martha mohammed is that how you pronounce it i don't know the mahathir mohammed possibly so um he has very recently scored a historic victory in the general elections in malaysia so um does anyone else want to anything about that election? he's really old he's 92 yeah. Yeah, so this is actually the second time he's become the president of uh, Malaysia. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sorry, prime minister of Malaysia. He was prime minister between 1981 and 2003. um, And he used to actually have close relations with the prime minister he... Yeah, he was like his protege, right? Like his little... uh, He was like a mentor to this guy, but then the Mm -hmm. long-standing prime minister became extremely corrupt and now he's back to depose him. Yeah, so uh, prime minister (laughs) Najib Rez... Razek was um, voted out of government uh, yesterday, two days ago, um, very recently, um, after um, he was involved in what was called the 1MB scandal, uh, sorry, 1MD scandal. It's basically a multi-billion dollar corruption scandal uh, where money was being siphoned out of the Malaysian Development Fund um, and into uh, properties um, associated with the government and especially... uh, Prime Minister Razek's family. Um, huge scandal, lots of public outcry. Um, 
US Attorney General Jeff Sessions described it as kleptocracy at its worst. Uh, It's really been dominating Malaysia's political scene for a very long period of time. And I guess the voting in of Prime Minister Matatia Mohamed is kind of Malaysia saying, screw you, (laughs) we're voting in for anyone but you. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm no expert on Malaysian politics, but I have a lot of Malaysian mates who went back to vote. So they really care about it. So this is exciting for them, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Um, plus, I think worth noting this 92-year-old guy is actually just waiting for his successor to be released from jail so that he can actually retire. Because 92 is way too old to yeah. be doing anything. He's still pretty sprightly, though. Like, yeah, he doesn't he, look that old. Yeah, like he did so many, I think, was it four like media interviews or something like that within 24 hours or 48 hours? And I was like, wow. I hope I can do that when I'm 92. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so on the other end of the spectrum, we actually did a little Google search of who actually was the youngest um, ruler. And we believe it's um, Jean-Claude Dovalier of Haiti. He was president from 1971 at the age of 19, which is really, really young. And he became the president after his father's death. Um, unfortunately, it's a little bit less to celebrate if Wikipedia is a reliable choice, so, uh, a reliable source. Supposedly, thousands of Haitians were killed or tortured, and hundreds of thousands fled the country during his presidency. So, maybe 19 is a bit too young to rule. It was also a time that was dominated by widespread corruption. Um, and I, that's kind uh, of indicated by voting in a 19 year old guy. Yes, mm. um, or voting in the president who happens to be the father, father yeah. the son of the former oh, yeah. president. Oh, um, there's, I, I always have problems with uh, uh, family-based political dynasties. Um, I don't think they Personally, kind of, um, <laughs> not my thing. <laughs> they're just not a thing. I, I don't know. I just, I, I mean, yes, we see it in America and we see it in other presidential democracies. Uh, I don't know. India has a long-running history of electing uh, the Gandhi family, which is actually uh, not related to Mahatma Gandhi. Is actually oh. a yeah, Indra Gandhi married a man who had happened to have the last name Gandhi um, and therefore she carried on after her father who was the first Prime Minister of India. Fun fact, guys. Um, But political dynasties I feel like don't always have the best um, kind of indication of your country's openness to people climbing up the ranks of a political system. Does this also tie into your ambivalence towards the royals? I mean, yes, it does. (laughs) Um, But I feel like they're just more blatant than a system where the president's son becomes the president. I think when you're... At least you know that's what monarchy is. Yeah, a monarchy is a bit more established. You know what you're signing on to, which is why I want to sign out. Um, (laughs) But I think with a presidential system, I get worried for democracy when I see the son or the daughter or the wife or the husband or the grandfather of whoever was previously in power just coming back in. Mm. But let us know what you think. Uh, Do you agree? Do you disagree? What is better, younger politicians or older politicians? Let us know um, on our Twitter at at SinRepresent or on our Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. Awesome. So I guess this is all we have time for this week then. Um, And of course, we'll be back next week, 3 to 4 p.m. Hopefully we'll have another episode packed in with news like today. Um, Catch us on Sin Nation and we're also streaming online on um, sin.org.au. Otherwise, feel free to follow our show on Omni, also at Sin Represent, and you can catch up on past episodes. Uh, I think that's all. The show is produced by Zizi and Maggie. I'm Maggie. 
And I'm Zizi. I'm Claudia. I'm Oscar. And remember to, to stay, stay political. political.